How's everybody doing today? Good. 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 Bueno. Gorgeous weather out there. It's my favorite time of the year. Amen. Just absolutely beautiful. Well, <clears throat> I'm excited again today to uh, dive into the book of Thessalonians. It's about time, I suppose, we got to the text. <laughs> so we'll do that today, even though there really is a lot of background to know about this little church. And... Um, With that, let's go ahead and pray. Our God and Father, Lord, we praise you. We worship you and we glorify you, God. We recognize, Lord, that everything that happens, happens by your good hand. That, Lord, you are the sovereign king. That you direct the affairs of men and nations according to your will, according to your plan. For this is your world, Lord. You created the world, and you created it for your purpose. And, Father, we pray that you would help us to see our world from your perspective, from the divine perspective, from heaven itself, where we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. And we pray, O God, that you would uh, give us a heart that feels as you feel. Give us minds that are renewed with your word, God, and with your wisdom. We pray, Father, as we look into your word, that you would strengthen our faith and strengthen our love for you and for one another. And God, that you would encourage us with hope in the soon coming kingdom of our Lord Jesus. We thank you for all that you have done in your church to this day. We ask, Lord, that we might be privileged to be members serving diligently in your house, doing the work of faith, the labor of love. And God, we do pray, come quickly. Send our Lord Jesus to arrest the evil and the wickedness in this world. And Lord, bring the kingdom of righteousness and peace that you have promised from ages past. Oh, Lord, we eagerly look to it. We thank you for all that you are to us and all that you are doing in us. I pray, Lord, that our hearts would receive this word even as it is in truth, not the word of men, but the word of God. We honor you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So... With that, I I want to call your attention to the outline, the outline of the book that is at the bottom of page five on your handouts. And you'll notice that the book really kind of has two sections, those two sections being chapter one through chapter three, verse 13, which is basically chapter one, two, and three. And then chapters 4 and 5 are seen as kind of an instructional part of the letter. It's frequent in Paul's practice to begin his writing with much doctrine and theology and to sum it up with application and practice. And uh, if you will, that's also the character of this letter. However... Uh, when Paul gets to his um, instruction here in this letter, he's going to give us some very specific details about the coming, the second coming of our Lord Jesus. And uh, so this, of course, is a really exciting letter, and uh, there is much to be said. But in looking at these two sections, you'll see that the first section... um, you notice 1A there, it says Paul's praise of their growth. You look to the right and you see the number one. That is the whole first chapter of the book of First Thessalonians is Paul's praise and thanksgiving to God for the health of the Thessalonian church. And, of course, we've had the background. We know they were a young church. They were planted in the midst of just a a small, short time of discipleship from the apostles, that is, Paul, 
and Silas and Timothy. They were there laboring together and and planting and establishing this church. And then they were run out of town by angry Jews and a mob. And, um, And then this church was left behind to thrive. And thrive they did in the midst of a hostile environment and uh, a hostility that was ongoing even uh, at the writing of Second Thessalonians. There Paul is writing to explain to them that their patience in the Lord will be rewarded because of their great suffering, because the Lord is coming to bring retribution to those who caused them to suffer through persecution. And so we know even at the time of the writing of Second Thessalonians that this church was under much hostility. So we shouldn't think for a minute that the Thessalonian church was not under persecution. They were. And the very hostility that you saw experienced in Acts chapter 17 when we saw Jason, um, I'm sorry, uh, uh, the, the Jews and the, um, the angry mob, which he stirred up, run Paul and Silas and Timothy out of town. That same hostility was carried on into normal everyday life where this church was was persecuted. And, of course, you realize that the message of Christianity was somewhat opposed to the common cultural practices and cultic religious ideas of this pluralistic, uh, uh, pagan, idolatrous city. So, if you will, they're preaching the Christian gospel, which is calling them to repent of their idolatries the very thing that they are involved in worshiping and serving these pagan idols. And so, if you will, Christianity was a religion opposed to the religions of that day and opposed to the people who are, if you will, living in these pagan idolatrous practices. And those pagan idolatrous practices had become part of their very life, part of their very culture as uh, most societies do when, they, when they're dominated by a specific kind of religion, or in this case, uh, several kinds of religion, those practices get emulgated into the, the very practice of culture. And so along comes these Christians who are saved out of this idolatry and begin to preach the gospel of Christ, telling uh, those around them to turn from their dead, false idols to serve a living and true God. And of course, that message is met with much hostility and opposition, especially in Thessalonica, which was a city of tremendous wickedness. It was a center, if you will, for all of these things, being the principal or the mother city of of the province of, of Macedonia. So you kind of get the setting of this church, you know, it's this little fledgling church that um, responded so powerfully to the gospel. And then they're left behind in the midst of this very wicked and, and very busy and thriving city that's filled with all kinds of transient people. You remember that, that uh, uh, this city of Thessalonica is in a harbor port that's also connected to several trade routes that were flowing in and out of the city. And so we had all kinds of transient types, people from every nation around the Mediterranean Sea were there by boat and peoples from the north from Europe from both eastern and western Europe would come here because this was a a principal trade place and so uh, it just was a a place of tremendous vice tremendous sin and crime that went on in Thessalonica and here is this pure little church of which Paul says in verse 8 of chapter 1 that the gospel had sounded forth from them not only in Macedonia and Achaia but in every place he says and uh, so they are just a remarkable picture of a uh, very missions oriented if you will gospel preaching God centered church and uh, it is that uh, background that Paul gives the entire first chapter of 1 Thessalonians to their commendation. But I want you to to pay attention to his language, how he's very careful in commending them by thanking God 
for the good work that God is doing in them and recognizing that it's God's work primarily in them the reason for their productive and effective faith. Amen? So with that, we look then at verse 1 and following. I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 1 of, of 1 Thessalonians. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols, to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Amen? Amen. Okay. Well, there's a lot there. There really is a lot there. And it's just amazing to me, as you look into these Pauline epistles, how they just explain to us the character and the nature of our faith and they explain to us the character and the nature of Christian life and the very things that we live in and face. Amen? Not only that, but they give us tremendous teaching and insight into what it is that we're experiencing, this great mystery of salvation that had been kept hidden for long ages past but now was revealed through God's holy apostles and prophets through the preaching of the gospel. That is the good things which our Lord Jesus accomplished at the cross and in the resurrection. Amen? The good news that comes through the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, namely the salvation of our souls, the saving of our souls from the wrath of God, from the consequences of sin. In him, indeed, we have forgiveness of sins. Amen? We have redemption. We've been bought back from the power of sin and death. And now we live in Christ, safe and sound. Amen? And so uh, with that, verse 1, he says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Here he writes, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy. It is notable that Paul does not identify himself as an apostle in his greeting in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Typically, Paul's greetings includes a reference to his position as an apostle. For example, in 1 Corinthians 1.1, he writes, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. Now, you recall in the book of 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians, that Paul's apostleship is in question in that church because he has false apostles who are vehemently opposing his ministry to the Corinthian church. So when Paul writes his letter to the Corinthians, he writes and immediately announces the fact that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ and that that was by the calling and the will of God. And uh, you see this again in Galatians. Now, think about the character of the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're familiar with the book, right? (laughs) Paul spends all of his 15 chapters, right, Um, correcting the Corinthian church 
who was in great disorder and and had many, many kinds of doctrinal ills, if you will. <laughs> and so Paul's letter to the Corinthians was very corrective. And, and so when, when Paul announces himself, uh, he, he immediately has to call upon his authority as an apostle. Okay? Think again then at Galatians 1.1. 1, 1. We're studying the book of Galatians with Pastor Tim on Sunday mornings. And, and think about how Paul is writing, right, to correct this doctrinal error of the Judaizers, right, and to reprove the foolish Galatians who have so quickly turned away from the true gospel and are now beginning to follow this false gospel. And so the letter of Galatians is corrective. And Paul is having to write to correct the Galatian churches. And, and it wasn't just one church. It was the Galatian churches, okay, the churches in, in the whole province of what we today would be northern Turkey. Uh, so Paul's writing to many churches in that area who are being infiltrated with this doctrine of the Judaizers, which is a very pervasive and, and uh, wicked false teaching that said that uh, uh, Christians had to keep the law be, and be circumcised in order to be saved. So you needed faith in Christ plus <coughs> right, circumcision and the works of the law in order to be, to be saved. And so Paul is writing the book of Galatians in a corrective way. And so his greeting there, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And you recall that Paul spends more time in Galatians, it seems like, than almost any other epistle uh, defending his calling as an apostle and talking about how you know it didn't even, he wasn't even associated with the original apostles, but that he was taught by the Lord Jesus Christ himself by personal revelation and calling from Christ. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, he, he does all of this so that they will understand that he is a true apostle of Christ. And so that when he brings correction to their doctrine concerning the gospel, that he's got the right and the true gospel. Amen? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so he does uh, uh, something very similar in the book of Ephesians, which is not so much corrective. Uh, nevertheless, Paul there identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. You understand that when we look sometimes at these letters that Paul has written, it's because of the content of the letters that we find what was really going on in the church, if you will. And so we see how Paul writes to address specific issues, and we realize that there was either confusion or there was some kind of... Uh, uh, a correction that needed to take place or some kind of doctrinal instruction that needed to take place because they didn't know, they were ignorant. And so Paul is go writing to instruct them on these things. Uh, but, but many times, and, and you might think about this, I see this because I read a lot of commentary when I'm doing my study, but they're always coming up with these, these ideas about what they were really facing in the church based on the things that the apostle was writing. And uh, so you'll kind of see that as we go through this text. You kind of get a feel for what was going on in the church. But in the Thessalonian church, Paul isn't bringing correction. Paul is, is bringing commendation. And uh, if you will, um, it appears that his status as an apostle was not in question by this church or even in this entire region where Paul had established so many churches. Additionally, he adds the names of Silvanus and Timothy, his traveling companions, on his second missionary journey and fellow laborers in the gospel. So the idea here is that the Thessalonians and Paul, man, they were, they were together in this thing. And they had received Paul very much as an apostle, and they had received his message and become obedient to it. And... Um, so Paul doesn't go into a lengthy discourse about uh, uh, his qualifications as an apostle. Now, one thing he does in chapter 2, he explains, if you will, what his apostolic ministry looked like to the church. And, and as he's doing that, he's trying to encourage them in the things that they have uh, become so good at. And if you will, it's kind of an interesting thing that's happening here in Thessalonians. As Paul is writing to this church, and he's writing to commend them, He's actually got this goal in mind that you can see kind of woven into the first and second chapter, and that is that by commending them, 
he's exhorting them to persevere in these good things he's commending them for. He's exhorting them by way of encouragement to continue in these things and to excel in these things. And he even uses those terms as he's describing this commendation to them. He wants them to excel more and more in these good virtues that he gives them, if you will. He's, he's giving them uh, positive uh, encouragement in order that they might grow by it. And uh, so uh, this is a characteristic of Paul's writing in Thessalonians. And so he also mentions here Silvanus and Timothy. So Silas, or Silvanus, same guy, all right, is likely a Hellenistic Jew. Note the Greek name Silvanus. So if you will, Silas is, is kind of like his Hebrew name. And uh, uh, when, you, when you speak about it in Greek terms, right, it takes on this Silvanus. Well, <clears throat> he was likely a Hellenistic Jew, was a prominent member in the early church, establishing churches with Paul in the Gentile world, and later acting as a scribe for Peter, as is stated in 1 Peter 5.12. Later on in Silas's ministry, he actually was a scribe for Peter and was involved in actually writing the book of 1 Peter. Uh, Timothy was Paul's son in the faith and faithful companion and worker through much of Paul's apostolic ministry. Timothy worked tirelessly in the ministry as pastor, evangelist, and missionary. He is the subject of Paul's pastoral letters in 1 and 2 Timothy. Timothy is an amazing guy. Uh, he's he's in, in many places in the scripture, particularly in the Pauline letters. You find his name a lot in the, uh, in the commendations and uh, the greetings where Paul will mention Timothy. He'll mention Timothy's ministry. And then, of course, the books of 1 and 2 Timothy are, are the pastoral letters of instruction that are written from Paul to Timothy. And that's where we get in the New Testament a tremendous insight into what pastoral ministry is all about. However, when Paul writes these, you begin to see uh, how much work Timothy was actually involved in. And if you will, here's Timothy traveling along the seashore with Paul to all these cities, right? Making gospel converts, preaching the kingdom of God, and along with Paul, getting run out of every town they show up in, right? I mean, it's just a matter of time. You know, Paul's like a ticking time bomb, you know? He goes in these places and starts preaching the gospel, and it's not long, and they're ready to hang him. Right? And in some places, he gets a, a little bit better reception than others. <laughs> but nevertheless, it seems like it's only a matter of time, and he's in big trouble. Well, Timothy is his uh, <clears throat> double trouble. <laughs> Timothy is his, uh, his traveling companion that seems to be in trouble every time Paul's in trouble. Uh, however, you notice how they get run out of Thessalonica. They, they go over to Berea. Then these Jews from Thessalonica chase them to Berea, uh, but they're really hacked at Paul. So they're after Paul. Well, they run Paul out of Berea, but Timothy and Silas stay behind. And so, if you will, Timothy was so accomplished in his ministry, as was Silas, that they were perfectly well qualified to make disciples, right, to establish churches, and to appoint elders in those churches. And, uh, and so, if you will, uh, that's exactly what they did. But you notice it wasn't a long time after that. Paul fled down to Athens, and then uh, Timothy and Silas rejoined him there. And Paul says, hey, those Thessalonians, my heart is breaking for them. Go, go see how they are. Remember those people we left in that great cloud of, of anger and hostility? Those little baby Christians we left behind back there? He says, my heart has been breaking and longing for them. He sends Timothy up to go see how they are. Well, you know, here's Timothy, man. He's like Johnny on the spot. I mean, think about the, 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 uh, the work that's involved. I mean, he's given his whole life to this thing. Paul says, hey, go check on the church. Man, Timothy, he's ready to go. And so he heads on up there. And, of course, he comes back with a tremendous report of, of what had happened in the church. But you kind of get a picture of, of these traveling companions of Paul and how faithful they are and at what length they will go to to minister the gospel to these churches. And, uh, and, and you know they, just like Paul, were in many toils and many dangers. And uh, this was a hostile place, you know. Imagine what it looked like 
for Timothy when he comes walking back up on the horizon of Thessalonica, and there he sees the city, and he's thinking, wow, I wonder if I could sneak in here, you know, because they know who he is. And uh, nevertheless, I, I, uh, I assume he was much more bold than that, right? Not only himself also longing to see the Thessalonians. Well, you get a picture of how these guys uh, just work tirelessly in the church. And, you know, it wasn't as easy like it is today. You just don't hop in the car and drive to Thessalonica, you know. <laughs> Athens, is, Athens is a good hundred miles from, from Thessalonica, you know, and uh, they spent a lot of time walking. And uh, if their old bones felt anything like my old bones, man, <laughs> walking 100 miles, that's, that's quite a deal, right? Well, <clears throat> even though both Silas and Timothy are included in the greeting, this is simply a consolation of grace on Paul's part to include them as they were fellow workers with him in the church's conversion and ongoing health. This was a frequent practice by Paul, whose authorship of the Thessalonians' letters is rarely questioned, noting the use of the personal pronouns I in 2.18, 3.5, and 5.27. I'll give you an example of that. Paul writes in 2.18, he says, For we wanted to come to you. Now, who's we? Paul and Silas and Timothy, right? And then he says, I, Paul... More than once, and yet Satan hindered us. Okay? And so, if you will, Paul identifies that we were workers together in this church, right? Nevertheless, I, Paul, in other words, when he says, I, Paul, he's identifying himself as the writer. Okay? Well, this happens again in in chapter 3, verse 5. He says, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So there again, Paul saying, I, identifying himself as the writer. And then again also in chapter 5, verse 27, he says, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. And so if you will, even though he names Silas and Timothy in the greeting, Paul is the actual writer. Okay, and so it is. Paul the apostle is the author of both First and Second Thessalonians. It's interesting. We don't question that much, do we? <laughs> it's amazing what you would find men doing when they go off to Bible school, <laughs> and the kinds of things that uh, uh, are invented, if you will, off in the ivory towers of. Um, Ivy League schools. <clears throat> it's rather obvious that Paul is the writer of First Thessalonians. Would you agree? Yes. And do you receive that as the word of men or as the word of God? Yes. So when men uh, uh, whine and cry and pound their feet and tell us that it was some other guy other than the Apostle Paul, right? We don't receive their message. Instead, We receive the word from God, amen, as it is in truth, the word of God. And here it is in the book, Paul's the writer of the book. Why shall we question? Amen? Does it not bear the marks of Paul's writing? Do you not sense by the reading of these words that these are the words of the Apostle Paul? Is this not the same great apostle that writes to us all of the rest of the epistles? It's just, uh, it's mind-boggling, the lengths that men will go to, to try to pervert the gospel, and the message of Christ. Amen? So let us not be swayed. He writes here, though, listen, to the church of the Thessalonians. And you think, well, you know, we're just going to read right by that. But consider what's being said. To the church of the Thessalonians. Paul's inclusion of the word church is the common word for gathered Christians, which is the English translation of the word ecclesia, meaning the called out ones are the chosen ones. Did you know that when you use the word church, what that word means? Mm-hmm. That, that word is a gathering of people which God has called out. That's what it means. It's the called out ones, the chosen ones. It speaks of divine election, the word church itself. 
It is the assembly of God's people. But specifically with the nature of a divine calling. That's what it means. The word in its root form is called. The past tense of the word call. Okay? So when you speak of the church or when Paul writes of the church, he's writing of the church, God's people, the ones God called. And uh, this is uh, an important thing to understand whenever you talk about the church. No doubt, this remarkably healthy church is among the true elect people of God, as is evidenced by their fruitful life and Paul's statement in verse 4. Because you know he goes on to say about them in, in just a few verses later, he says, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. You see that? But anytime you use the word church, this is exactly what you refer to. You refer to that gathering of people which God has assembled by the word of his own mouth, by calling the ecclesia, right? The, uh, I, I think of the Spanish word for church is iglesia, right? Which is referring to what? The Greek word ecclesia. The word means the called out ones. It's a glorious word. It's a glorious truth. Now, Thessalonica was no small city, but was in fact the capital city in the entire province of Macedonia. Therefore, God's establishment of such a prominent and healthy church here, in spite of strong satanic opposition, was a very strategic matter in regards to the evangelization of this region of the Roman world. Think about this. Here's this trade city. Here's all these people passing in and out of there, right? And guess what? That's where the Lord establishes, uh, decides to establish a healthy church. Not only a healthy church, but a gospel-centered, God-centered church who's going to serve and obey God, who's going to turn their back on their pagan idolatry and begin to serve and obey the living and the true God. And, uh, and, it, and I'm, I'm suggesting that by the plan of God, this is a very strategic uh, work that God is doing in accomplishing the evangelization of the Roman world. You see that? Well, of this, William Burkett writes, and he says, Thessalonica was the metropolis or mother city of Macedonia, where a Christian church was planted by the ministry of St. Paul and Silas, but with great opposition from the Jews... Notice who's opposing the church here. Who forced Paul to fly to Berea for his own safety, Acts 17, and Jason with others that entertained him had liked to have been sacrificed in their own houses. Yet there, in despite of the devil's rage and persecutor's malice, doth God erect a glorious church, a Christian church, in honor of his son who purchased it with his blood. And I, I just love the way he speaks about God's plan of redemption here and how he says that God established this church for the glory and honor of his own son who bought the church with his blood. Amen. You see how that's a God-centered view of what's going on in the Thessalonian church? You know, it wasn't just Paul and his companions strolling through town preaching a message and it just happened to catch on. You understand? Yes. These people received the word of God and it came with power. It came with full conviction, he says. So much so that the gospel, he says, sounded forth from them. God was at work in a very powerful way in this church. And uh, I think it's just a, an awesome way that uh, this writer comments on this and, and says, Doth God erect a glorious church, a Christian church, in honor of his son? Amen? And so we see in these things God, God doing his work. God is the one who works in you both to will and to do according to his own good pleasure. Amen? And so, if you will, the commendation is to God. Wouldn't it be something, a little personal application here, heritage, wouldn't it be something if we could see ourselves as such a strategic and fruitful ministry in our region of the world and point in history as this glorious Thessalonian church? Wouldn't it be something if the gospel was sounding forth from us? 
wouldn't it be something if we were impacting our region of the world so that our faith would not even need to be mentioned because it was spread so wide and far? Wouldn't it be something? Well, if you would join me in longing to see that happen. Amen? We got something to shoot for. We got something to live for. We've got a purpose. We've got meaning in this world. Amen? And it's not to live for dead, false idols. Are you with me? But we've got a message to proclaim, just like they did. So, when we look into the Thessalonian letters and we see the character and the nature of the church, the character and the nature of a healthy church, right? Let us long and desire to take on those very characteristics, if you will. Amen? So think about it in terms of this. If we could mimic this young Thessalonian church, we would be ones sounding forth the gospel so that our faith needed no introduction in various places of our entire region. But they know who we are. Amen? Those Christians down there in Albuquerque who are serious about the faith. You with me? Can I get a witness? Amen. Amen. All right. But notice how he says of this church, this church of the Thessalonians, that they are, listen, little word, in. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a little word with a big meaning. Okay? It is a marvelous truth to understand the relation that we now have with God through Christ. Just like the greeting in 2 Thessalonians, Paul states that the church is in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is no small statement, but one which describes our union with God and also with Christ. Okay, I want you to remember that term, union with Christ, union with God. That's what the word in speaks of. We, the church, are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in Christ. Amen? Amen. That's what this word is telling us. We are in him. That is, we participate in the very life of God because of the unique position we now hold because of our redemption by Christ. Now I want you to think about this. Who is the church? The church are those ones that God called out by the gospel, and we responded by what? Believing with God-given faith. Amen? And upon believing, we became included, right, in the church of God by the redemption of Christ. And when that happened, what is it that Christ did that, that, that afforded us this position that we now have to be in the church? Right? Well, he sanctified us by the purchase of redemption. He bought us back from sin. He paid the penalty of our sin and he imputed to us his perfect life of righteousness so that now we stand in the assembly of God's people perfectly justified and accepted in the sight of God. Amen? Amen? You with me? So you have one thing you have to understand about, about this union that we have with God and with Christ. It's all because of Christ. Right? We didn't earn it. We didn't work for it. What we earned was death and destruction. Right? Yet God, by his grace, gave us this favor that is in Christ by uh, 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 canceling the debt of our sins through the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus and satisfying the wrath of God there and then imputing to us his perfect life of obedience to the law so that God now sees us complete in Christ, right, as his uh, uh, called out gathering of believers. These believers have been sanctified once for all by the blood of Christ and we now stand in this justified position, okay, We're God's holy church. We're God's holy people because we've been cleansed by the righteousness of Christ himself. Are you with me? And so this has afforded us this unique position that Paul says, we are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about this. How is it that we can be in the holy God? How can we be in union with the holy God being yet sinners? Okay? That speaks of the tremendous cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ that we have received by faith. 
Are you with me? And so it's very important to understand this union that we have with God is entirely based upon the good things that Christ has done. And it's been given to us as a free gift. Okay? Now I want you to think about that as we talk a little bit more about union with God and Christ. But I want you to understand that when, when, we, when we came to Christ, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were headed for eternal destruction. We were abiding in death, right? But God, who is rich in mercy, right? Ephesians 1, 4. Because of his great love, wherewith he loved us, what? Made us alive in Christ. You with me? And so there is this whole idea of experiencing the life of God. A Christian, listen, has passed from death unto life. John 5, 24. Jesus says, he who believes in me has passed from death into life. You see? And so as we are in God, listen, we are experiencing the very life of God. Eternal life, I might add, is its very nature. You understand? You're never going to die. If you are in Christ, you are never going to die. Why? Because you've passed from death into life. You now abide in him and he abides in you. You are experiencing the very life of God. And family, that's what this mysterious, glorious thing that's going on inside your heart, that's what it is. It's the life of God. Yeah, we describe it as joy and peace, joy unspeakable and full of glory. Amen? Which every Christian knows what that is because they experience it. Amen? But there is this peace and this working of the Spirit where we have this insatiable desire to want to love people. And our heart is filled with love. And we have this hatred for sin. And we got this old man we're dragging around. And, and we're, we're trying to kill him every chance we get. We hate sin and we love God. And there's this powerful thing working in our hearts, right? We're longing to be patient. We're longing to be kind and gracious and benevolent. And, you know, our whole life has been changed by this power that's working in our hearts. Amen? Amen. I'm telling you, this is the experience of the very life of God that we have now because of our union with Christ. This is what happens when Christ comes to live inside somebody's heart. That's why every true Christian is being changed from the inside out. Christ has come to live inside of them. Let me tell you, he's going to sweep that place clean. Are you with me? Why? Because he's holy. He's pure. The the idea of sin and wickedness is is putrid to him. He hates it. When he comes in your heart, let me tell you, he's going to clean that thing out. You keep wondering why all that stuff keeps coming up and out of there? Let me tell you why. Because God's not comfortable with it in there. And he wants it out. You with me? And that's kind of what the sanctification process is. <laughs> but it's a glorious thing, isn't it? It's, a, it's an amazing power that is taking place in us. I'm telling you, it's the experience of the very life of God. Having been sanctified by the blood of Christ in the atonement, we have now become the very dwelling place of God who lives in us by the presence of his Holy Spirit. Think about what's being said here, that we are in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we speak about this union that we have with God, understand that in the New Testament, it goes two different ways. As Paul states elsewhere, we are the very temple of the Holy Spirit. Not only are we in God, but God is in us. Christ is in us. More than this, we are said to be in Christ and he is said to be in us. Consider Paul's statement in Galatians 2.20. There he says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. And here Paul is writing and he says that Christ lives in me. Now, that's an amazing thing. Amen? And uh, now you, you get a little bit clearer picture of why you're in a great struggle and battle in this wretched world. Amen? It's, it's, it's an amazing, supernatural, cataclysmic thing that's taking place in your life. Amen? And, and this is what happens when somebody truly gets saved. There is an amazing, wonder-working power 
that comes to change us from the inside out. Amen? And that's why true saving faith produces works that verify the reality of it. Are you with me? We can't just say that we're believers and then not do the word. Are you with me? What an empty testimony is that? Now we're back to hypocrisy, hypocritos, right? Not that we're perfect already, right? But we're pressing on. And the whole focus of our life has changed. We've turned our back on sin. Now we're pursuing Christ. We want to be like him. Amen? Why? Because he's powerfully at work within us. Listen, Christ lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Right? And he explains, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I realize that old man of the flesh, he's going to die. But this new man is being renewed day by day until one day soon I'm going to pass into glory never to be encumbered by sin again. Amen? Amen? And that's our great hope. But look how he writes in Colossians 3.3. He says this, For you have died. That's the same with I have been crucified with Christ. Amen? You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now it's going the other way. Now my life is hidden with Christ in God. And now he's speaking of the union that I have, being in God himself. Now think about this. How amazing is this? That now I am in God. Now I am inexplicably tied to him. What a glorious reality. How can that happen? How can sinful man be tied to holy God in such a way that we are described as being in him? And I'm going to explain to you, this is the power of the gospel. This is how powerfully you have been cleansed and made holy in the sight of God. Your sins have been completely cleansed away, so much so that you can now abide in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's how complete the atonement is. That's how complete your salvation is. That's how perfect the work that Christ did as a high priest is. It's perfect, family. Listen, you can rest. Okay? Your sins have been drowned in the deepest part of the sea. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Amen? You with me? So much so that now you have union with God and with Christ. It's a glorious reality. This union with Christ and with the Father is, is the great mystery of what it means to be a Christian. Follow me here. This union with God and Christ is, is a great mystery of what it means to be a Christian. See, this is this thing we can't articulate to people. It's, it's so difficult to try and explain that Christ lives in you and that you live in Christ and that you're inexplicably tied to him in such a way. And, and think about this. God is spirit, right? Mm-hmm. Christ is not here bodily within me. He's in my body, right? Mm-hmm. But his body is not in my body, right? He's, he's in me by his spirit. God is spirit. Are you with me? And so we begin to try to describe these spiritual realities, and there's just no words. It's it's a great mystery to describe. What's going on inside of you, man? I mean, some of you people get saved, like Darren Birch. Where's Darren? Darren here? Darren Darren gets saved, man. His whole family wondering, what in the world is going on with this guy? You know? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ has come to live in his heart. He now has union with the eternal God, the holy God of heaven. And now he hates sin and he loves what's good and right, you know, so much so he's stirred to preach. <laughs> so he runs around telling everybody that Jesus is Lord. You better repent of your sins. Come to the Lord. Be saved from the coming wrath. Come to the Lord and receive the free water of life. Receive the blessing of God forever. And they think he's a religious lunatic. They think he's nuts. They think he's crazy. Praise God. Christ lives in him. Are you with me? This is what's happening in our Christian life. We have come to live in God and he has come to live in us. And that's what we see happening in the Thessalonian church. (laughs) 
Paul goes through town. He's not there four weeks, right? Three months later, these people have evangelized the entire providence of Macedonia, right? What's going on? Jesus lives in them, and they live in him. You see that? Well, in fact, all three members of the Godhead are said to live in us and us in them as we share in and experience the divine and eternal life of God himself. Consider the wonderful and powerful love and affection for God and Christ that wells up within our hearts. I don't know about you, but there are times when I lay down on my bed at night there is this overwhelming <laughs> sense of love for God that is in my heart. And I, I don't have any outlet for it except just to praise God and to think about his goodness and to think about how gracious he has been to me. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I'm deserving of death. I constantly fail and sin against God. And yet God pours out his grace and his love and his mercy on me. And he's always there. Here's this thing. I lay down on my bed. I start praying, God, I'm so thankful. And I start trying to count my blessings. I want to express this to you. This is union with Christ. And I'm laying on my bed and I'm counting my blessings. God, I'm so thankful for this. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so grateful for what you're doing. But you know what? God has not left me. And even though I've sinned against him in countless ways, he's still with me. You understand what I'm saying? And it's not based on me. It's not about me. It's about him. It's about his grace and his love and his mercy and his cleansing power. He's come to live inside me. He hasn't forsaken me. Okay? So much so that here I am laying on my bed just recounting the glory of his grace and thinking how undeserving I am and how he has just continued to pour out his blessing on me day after day after day. Kindness after kindness after kindness. And it's, it's this patience and this kindness of God that's leading me to repentance. Are you with me? And this is what I'm experiencing because Christ is in me. And I am in him. And I lay down on my bed at night. And no matter what happens, no, no matter how wicked I have been, no matter how I have even failed my own conscience, let alone God, <laughs> right? The gospel is there to cleanse me. And the Father's heart is there to receive me. Amen? It's a glorious thing that God has done for us in Christ. But consider this. Where does this love and affection for God come from? Where is this welling up in our hearts of love for God? What is that? I'm telling you, it's the very life of God's Spirit living in your heart. Because you know what's uppermost in God's affections, right? What? God. God is uppermost in God's affections. Okay? Nothing higher in God's affections than God himself. You with me? (laughs) Maybe you're not with me. We're with you, Sean. Okay. (laughs) And you wonder, well, that's pretty selfish of God. (laughs) Yeah, it's selfish of God, and it's the only being. He's the only being, right, in the universe of which that is a virtue and a glory, right? Every other being in the universe is created. And for a creature to have himself uppermost in his own affections is for that creature to fall short of the glory of God because God is eternally higher, I'm sorry, infinitely higher, right, and infinitely more valuable, right, than the creature itself. So for the creature's affections to be set in the right place must be set upon God, who is the source of all virtue, who is the source of all that is right and good and holy and pure and noble. Amen? Amen. And any good that is in us comes from him. Amen? This is why when God is uppermost in his own affections, he's only doing what's right and good and holy and perfect and righteous and true. Are you with me? And and so, so it is that this well that's bubbling up out of the inside of our soul, okay, is filled with affection for God and for Christ. Because that's the very Holy Spirit of God's work within us. 
causing us to delight in him, to delight in what is good, to delight in what is glorious and virtuous and wonderful. Amen? Because that's what God's very character and nature is. And so this is what we're experiencing in union with God and with Christ. This spirit of goodness and righteousness and holiness and truth and eternal power is living in us. Amen? And it's, it's, it has converted our soul. We've been born again by the Spirit of God, right? And now the law of God has been written upon our hearts, and we, by the power of God, affirm that he is uppermost in our affections. Amen? Amen. And it's almost like you can't even control it. You couldn't hate God if you wanted to. <laughs> if you're a true born-again Christian, you with me? Because the Spirit of God is powerfully working in your heart to convert your soul and cause you to love what is true and good and righteous and noble, namely God himself. Amen. Are you with me? Amen. Well, this is the experience of the very life of God. This is what it means to be a Christian. And if all this rambling I've been doing for the last 15 minutes doesn't reach you and you can't say the amen, you need to go to the cross and be saved. Amen. Are you with me? Because that's what Christian life is all about. It's about coming to Christ in faith and repentance, being washed and cleansed of all your sins, so much so that now you become the holy temple of God and he comes to live inside you. And that begins a powerful transforming uh, a presence and, and uh, work that in your life and in your heart. And that's what I've been describing to you, right? But this is all happening because of this wonderful thing that happens in salvation. We call it union with Christ. Amen? Amen. You with me? Amen. One more thing about union with Christ. This little book. This is one of my favorite books. <laughs> it's called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Okay, I wanted to mention this to you again. It's by John Murray. Redemption Accomplished and Applied. It is a very short, brief, clear, and concise teaching about the whole doctrine of salvation and what it means. Okay? As I was studying for this lesson today, I got to the section on union with Christ, and I was just praying and pondering that and thinking, you know, Lord, this is so glorious. How can I describe this? And I'm looking at some of the commentators, and some of them were very helpful. John MacArthur was very helpful. He had a lot to say on this. John Calvin was very helpful. He had a ton to say. It was very enlightening. But then I realized and I remembered where I learned about union with Christ. And it was from John Murray. He has a title, uh, a chapter in here entitled Union with Christ. And he goes through the whole thing. You know, it just explains the entire understanding of what union with Christ is. And uh, so I wanted to recommend that to you. If you need a little reference on your shelf for what different doctrines are, the doctrines of salvation this is it okay so i wanted to mention that to you okay then we are in christ and he is in us amen, amen. i wanted to tell you i was so encouraged this week we have a new believers class going on and and uh one of the new believers was was in the class this week and we we're just you know in these new believers classes, man, they're just questions are just flying, you know. And I mean, you know, they don't have these little questions. <laughs> you know, they got these big questions, you know. How come the world is like this, you know? And why did God do it like that? And you know, and they want to, they want the benefit of 25 years of theology put into two sentences. You know? It's like, uh, anyway, it's this exciting thing, right? When people, when, uh, when you have new believers, anyway. One of these new believers uh, wrote me after the class, and he said this in, in his little paragraph. He said something like, praise God or, or rejoice, he says, I am in Christ and he is in me. And he had exclamation points. And I just thought, man, he's got it. He's got it, you know. And, and uh, it was just, just glorious. But what about me? I've been saved for 18 years now. Is that the joy of my heart? Is it the joy of my heart to say, I am in Christ and he is in me? It is for everybody that's walking with Jesus every day. Amen? And you know what? If you're not, look, it's real simple. It's not hard at all. Turn your back on your sins 
and trust in Christ for what he's done to make you righteous before God. And then follow him. That's how easy it is. Amen? And that ain't hard. Get your nose in the book. Amen? Wow. It's over. (laughs) Sorry. Well, I promise that chapter 1 is loaded. Chapter 2 and 3 is going to go a lot faster. When we get to chapter 4, we're going to be way off in all this heavenly stuff, and um, it'll have us on the edge of our seats, as it has me ever since I started studying these books. So, um, let's pray. God, our Father, I... I pray that, Lord, as we are going through these weeks and pondering uh, your letter to the Thessalonians through our, the Apostle Paul, I pray, Father, that we would see in there these nuggets of divine truth that just feed our soul and they cause us to consider all that you have done for us in Christ. And, Lord, I, I pray that our Christian life would not be dull and that, Lord, we would not be lonely. Mm-hmm. Father, that we would not be so caught up in the events of the day, Lord, that we're overcome with despair. Mm-hmm. God, how can that be when Jesus lives in us? Mm-hmm. God, open the eyes of all of us to see the glory to which you have called us. And God, help us to experience this life that you have put in our souls. And I pray, Father, that you would strengthen our faith. Lord, that you would cause us to love more and more as we see the day approaching. And that, Lord, our hope would be steadfast, eagerly awaiting the coming of your son, Jesus, who saves us from the coming wrath. Oh, Lord, we thank you for all that you are to us and all that you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.